This morning we had a great time at Sunday school. In here, uh, the last song, it talked about praising his holy name. And we were studying holiness, and we looked at the definition of the word holy, which means other. That God is different. And one of the things that was brought out was the Lord's Prayer. The first thing God wants of us in the prayer is our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name. That God wants us to revere his name. And then the second thing, your will be done. And it's important for us to understand when we understand God's holiness that we are to worship him our desire will be that His will be done in our lives. Our prayer is not supposed to be, Lord, bless my plans. Our prayer is, Lord, what are your plans? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have shown for us. We thank you that your holiness does demand that we live a life that is separated and different, that we live a life that is not the same as those around us. We thank you that you provided a way to give us the ability to live that life. And we pray that you'll work in our hearts and remind us of this. Remind us of your holiness. Remind us that we need to seek what your will is in our lives, and seek to do it. And just strengthen us and help us to grow and help us to reach out to our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw that we should be pressing into a deeper understanding of God's word and of him. This week, we will be taking that first plunge into deeper waters. One of the things I learned from this passage is that there is a scriptural example showing exactly how to use scripture to interpret scripture. When we approach the study of the Bible, the most important rule is that I do not, under any circumstances, approach the task with the idea that I can read into the scriptures what I want it to say. We should always compare Scripture with Scripture. We should always allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in our studies. We should be careful and considered when we study the Word of God. In this passage, the author of Hebrews examines Genesis 14, 17-20 and Psalm 110-4. And I wanted to read those two passages before we start looking at, at this, this uh, type that he is going to develop in Hebrews chapter 7. Genesis 14, 17 through 20 says, Then after his return from the defeat at Chedorlaomer, 
and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavath, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. So here we see Abraham actually went out to rescue his nephew Lot. There was a battle that went on between Sodom and some other kings, and they lost the battle, and, and Lot was taken captive. Abraham heard about it, went out and rescued his nephew, came back with the victory spoils. And Melchizedek comes out and blesses him. And Abraham then gives him a tenth of the spoils of the land, of, of the battle. And then hundreds of years later, David writes this in Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Those are the only two passages that mention this person's name. Very little to go on here. What's interesting is the author of Hebrews finds a lot that is in here. He spends the next four chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10, digging in and talking about it. We're only going to be looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 7 today. And we're going to see that he's laying a foundation for what he is going to be talking about throughout the rest of these four chapters. I'm going to start reading at verse 19. I'm going to read through verse 3 first of all. And if you notice, I have a table that talks about how he's comparing Melchizedek and Christ. And we're going to talk about that when, when I get to it, or when I finish these verses. But Hebrews 6, 19 through 7, 3 says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. This is a clear scriptural example of the study of what are known as types in the Bible. Types are a form of theological study, and I want to read a good definition that I found. It's, called, it's on the Christian Library website. Um, and I wanted to read this to you because it explains it. It's kind of hard to get an understanding of the idea, so I wanted to read this whole section that they had on it. What is a type? Literally speaking, the word type comes from the Greek word tuptine, to strike. In Webster's Dictionary, type is defined as to figure, to represent by a model or a symbol. Beforehand, in the context of our study of the Bible, we consider both the type and the anti-type. These are two terms, and I'm going to talk about the second term in, in a few minutes. In our study of the Bible, a type is a person, place, thing, or event that is foreshadowing a future person or event. The anti-type is the thing the type foreshadows. It is greater and clearer to understand. For example, a rubber stamp is a type. It is not clear and simple to understand. However, its anti-type, the print that appears, when the rubber stamp is pressed on paper is much clearer than the type. The type was a shadow or promise of the revealed anti-type to come. There are dozens of types of Christ in the Old Testament. I like to think of a type as a picture of something and the anti-type as a picture that it represents. A good example would actually be a picture of a cupcake. It looks like a cupcake. It might even make me hungry for a cupcake. But I wouldn't want to eat the picture. Now, as I was looking at this, Mary actually, when she saw this, said, anti-type, isn't that the opposite? And most people, when we think of the term anti, we think of opposite. And in a way, I sort of had a hard time wrapping my head around it. So I did some more studying this morning, and I actually added some things to my notes this morning. The term anti-type actually comes from the idea in the Greek of the result of an impression made when you stamp a coin. You have this picture on this coin. And that picture is a complete reverse image or reverse impression of what the stamp is. It is the opposite. For this reason, it's called anti-type. Now, in the scriptures, an anti-type is representative not by the fact that it is the opposite, but by the fact that it is similar not necessarily identical, but similar. And that's what we're going to see as we examine Hebrews here. 
that Melchizedek's life is very similar to that of Christ. Now, as we look at 7, 1 to 10, we will find a good pattern to follow. And we will see that this passage, the author of Hebrews carefully examines Melchizedek's life. And he finds comparisons that foreshadow Christ. George Guthrie in the Niv application commentary on Hebrews said this about some of the comparisons that were made. The writer finds that the Old Testament narrative does not say especially relevant for this argument. Following a common exegetical practice known as argument from silence, the author capitalizes on Genesis 14's lack of any reference to Melchizedek's ancestry, birth, or death. His point is not that Melchizedek exists as some sort of supernatural being. Rather, he focuses on the details of what the narrative does and does not say, anticipating a stark contrast between Melchizedek's priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, which he will develop later in this chapter. In the bulletin, you have this page, and I put a table on there. And if we look at the first two rows, we are looking at verse 2. And it says, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of peace. Here we see that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. These two things point clearly to Christ as the one person who uniquely fills both of these roles in one person. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Isaiah 9, 6, in, his, in, in the great prophecy of Jesus, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So here we see Jesus is the fulfillment of this picture that he is both the righteous king and the prince of peace. I also consider it interesting to note that righteousness imputed to us by what Christ did on the cross is what makes it so I can have peace with God. That there's those two things going on here. His righteousness makes it so I can have peace with God. The next three rows look at verse 3, which examines Christ's eternality, the fact that he is eternal. When I say eternal, I'm not just saying he lives forever. He never had a beginning either. And that's what it's saying here about Melchizedek. And again, he's taking from the fact that Hebrews 7.14 doesn't say anything about 
where Melchizedek came from. He just shows up. And now he says in Hebrews 7.3, without beginning of days. And this speaks of Christ as existing before the world began. John 1, 1 1-3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We all know that this is talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that came into being. He is the creator of all things. He was before the world began. Jesus Himself, when asked, said to them, to the Pharisees, in John 8, 58, Truly, uh, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus himself, even though he was born as a human being, he's telling them, before Abraham ever existed, I was there. Without end of life speaks of Christ's resurrection and eternal life at his Father's right hand. Mark 8.31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days, raised again. John 20, 24 to 30 says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here. Put your finger. See my hands and reach your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Therefore many other signs did Jesus also perform in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So here we see again, proof positive, Jesus lived after he died. Eternal life. And that's what he's saying here in, in, in Hebrews 7.3 is that Melchizedek was a picture of Jesus living forever. And then it says, he remains a priest perpetually. It looks at the fact that this is the only historical mention of Melchizedek. So all we see is him as a priest. And what he's saying here is that this itself is a picture of Jesus and his priesthood being eternal. 
Remember, Melchizedek did not live forever. But verse 3 is looking at Genesis 14 and noting that the way Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek was recorded in the scripture was done in such a way that these inferences can be made. It's amazing to think about this. God ordered this thing to happen this specific way. And not just this thing to happen this specific way, but for the person that wrote the book of Genesis, that is Moses, that he would write it in such a way that the author of Hebrews could then take out and see this picture of Christ centuries later. In the last row, we see that Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, which builds on the picture of Christ as our high priest. Verses, Hebrews 7, verses 4 to 10 say, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And the, those indeed, the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from the brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. He's saying without dispute, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. In that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. There's a lot of things he's reading into this scripture. And I want us to be, understand that we need to be very careful that we don't read into scripture like what he's doing here. This is scripture, so it's appropriate for us to see what he's saying here. He's not twisting something, but he's showing us an example of how we can examine the scriptures carefully and, and come to understand that there are pictures like this in the Old Testament that we can unpack for ourselves and look at and see ourselves. And it really is a, 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 a kind of a neat thing to see these things when, you, when you're looking at it. Here we're seeing a very important set of logical arguments he's using to build a foundation that he's going to build the rest of this chap these chapters on. And these arguments are lead to an inescapable lead to the inescapable conclusion that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Levi, or Aaron, who was the first Levitical priest. And that by the same 
and prince. Jesus, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, has a superior priesthood to that of Aaron. First it says, Abraham pays tithe to Melchizedek, and in so doing, Levi pays tithe, tithes to him in Abraham's body. Second, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because he blesses Abraham. Third, Melchizedek is not a, cre a priest according to the law since he is not a descendant of Levi. It's important to understand, he is not the same kind of priest because he's a priest before Levi even existed. And fourth, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because he blesses Abraham. You might ask, why does this preacher spend so much time on this point? The answer is, he is building this foundation. So, we cannot argue with what he's going to say in the future, in the rest of the book. In other words, these are inescapable, logical progression of things that he's talking about here. And as we look forward, we will see that every aspect of what Jesus did is superior to the law of Moses. This is where he's going. He's going to say, the law did this, Jesus did this. But what Jesus did is superior to what the law did. And it's important for us to get this point, so he's taking time to build this foundation. As I was studying this passage, I kept seeing what may seem to be small details have been used to point out very important truths about Christ. Some of these details are very easy to overlook. Some even needed to be deduced by logical reasoning because they were not explicitly stated in the text. And that's what the author of Hebrews did here. He looked and said, it's not said here, but we can understand this truth from what is not said. This impressed on me the importance of being diligent when we study the scripture. We must not just read the Bible. Reading the Bible is important, but reading it with purpose is more so. Sometimes we need to go over it many times to get the point God is trying to make with us. We must not be satisfied with reading a passage of Scripture and saying, my job is done. I've read my verse for the day. We must earnestly seek for God to speak to us through our studies. As I was writing this down, I'm reading it right from my notes, I did not feel very comfortable because I know I don't study as I should many times. 
This does not make what I'm saying wrong. It just means I need to work harder. If you get serious about your studies, be prepared to hear from God. He wants to speak to you. And it's up to you to listen. Also, be prepared. Because sometimes what you hear will not make you comfortable. And that's a good thing. There are times when we need to have the Lord talk to us in a way like, a, if you will, a Dutch uncle that says, hey, you need to fix this. We need to listen when he says those things to us. I was also very comforted by how this shows God is in control of all of the details. Everything from Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek to David's prophecy and Jesus' fulfillment shows God was in this from beginning to end. Every single detail God had control of. Everything that was written down, everything that was recorded, every reasoning that was made as the preacher wrote down what he wrote in Hebrews chapter 7. All of that was under God's control. Now that can be scary and it can be comforting. There are times when our lives are difficult. There are times when we feel pain. There are times when we just don't understand what's happening. But we also can be comforted by the fact that even in those times that we don't understand, God is in control. I wanted to close by reading Romans 8, 26 through 28. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We can take great comfort in this, that even though the details we see may be painful, God is in control of those details and he's using them to work in us to make us better, to strengthen us, to guide us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are in our lives, that your guiding hand is there, and that you are in control. We pray that you'll work in our hearts and help us to search your word out, to truly seek 
to pray that we regard your name as holy and that we also pray not my will but yours be done. Lord, work in us that we might reach out to our community. Show the love of Christ to those who do not know you. And be Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.